How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. They're the people that listen to us. They're the people that empathize with us. They're the people that say, I'm so glad you're here. It may be the only smile that you get in a day. I think the people in these industries provide tremendous impact for our communities. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're talking about how to find financial freedom as a tipped worker. Over 3 million people in the U.S. live solely or partially on a tip-based income. And the traditional advice of, be sure to get that match on your 401k, doesn't quite apply to these folks like it does for people working the 9-to-5 corporate life. Well, our guest today is focused on helping these 3 million people not only learn to control their money, but thrive with money and create a life they love. Barbara Sloan is our service industry expert guest today. Barbara is a personal finance expert and money coach that spent two decades working in every imaginable position in the service industry all over the country. In addition to owning and running a woman-owned construction company in the heart of Manhattan, she helps tipped workers achieve financial freedom like she did. She's the author of the new book, Tipped, the life-changing guide to financial freedom for waitresses, bartenders, strippers, and all other service industry professionals. And when she's not managing her business and helping tipped workers thrive, she enjoys spending time with her wife of 10 years in New York City. Welcome to the show, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. I'm excited to chat. Absolutely. Well, you've got an incredible background and I want to dive into it. So take us back. When did you get your start in the service industry? I didn't realize this until after I had finished the book, but I had actually got my first job working for tips when I was 10 or 11. I had a paper route and I had kind of forgotten that I enjoyed tips while I was a paper girl, like around the holidays, I remember getting like a dollar or $5 from people who I, who were on my route. And I remember feeling very, very rich. I worked at a couple of little restaurants when I was in high school as well. Like, I don't know if anyone remembers the A&W roller skating waitresses, car hop style for like hot dogs and root beer. But I worked in the A&W doing that. And so those were kind of like here and there jobs. I had a bunch of jobs while I was in high school But where my service industry career really took off was, you know, we have these moments in our life that kind of like punctuate the big moments. And when I was 19, my dad passed away and there was a a big moment for me. My mom had left home when I was 12. And so my dad was my primary parent for, for majority of those years. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for both of them and they both absolutely did the best that they could as parents, but there were substance use issues and and lots of stuff happening in my house growing up. And when my dad passed, the house ended up getting sold, but I was just not ready to let go of that house. And I remember writing a letter to the person who had purchased it. And I was like, listen, this house means a lot to me. I'm still grieving is there any chance I could buy it from you? And this was 2000 and 
2004. So I'm not sure if you remember what was happening with the markets. No, 2003, 2003, but they would give a mortgage to anyone. So I was 19, 2003. I took out a mortgage for more than twice the value of the home. I'm not even sure how that was possible and got myself into some serious, serious debt. So at 19, I had this mortgage. I had this big car insurance or car payment. I had taken out over a dozen credit cards to try to build the house back up to be like, I was working through my grief and how I was doing that was restoring my childhood home. And this was before YouTube and before Pinterest. And so I was at the library looking up how to do things and putting myself really deep in debt to kind of just tackle that, that grief. And about a year later, sort of after we had finished the house, the grief started to subside. And I just, my life had felt it felt so serious. It felt so hard and so serious. I had all this debt. I was in this house that I really didn't want. I just wanted it for the time. And so I ended up selling the house, moving to California and getting a job in the service industry because I needed something that just felt easy. And you know, what I realized after losing my dad was just life was so precious and so short and we should be doing things that make us feel joyful and connect and connecting us to other people. And that was what the service industry was for me. It was a job that felt fun and easy. And I got to be myself and I got to connect with other people and it just checked all those boxes. And so, yeah, I leaned in hard and I, and I loved it. That's incredible. Well, thank you for sharing that with us all. I remember getting a mortgage in 2004 and I definitely should not have gotten one <laughs> because I was consumed by my house at an early age at 22, just being like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then you just feel trapped. And I did not like feeling trapped by my home. So it sounds like you went to California for a little bit of a break. So what kind of fun roles did you have that you enjoyed there in California? Yeah. So when I was in California, I worked a bunch of jobs. I've had two career paths that I've worked pretty much in tandem, construction of the day and service industry and night or dirt in the day, dirty in the evening, as I like to say. So I worked for a developer out there, but I also had side jobs. I did catering gigs. I was a bartender. I was a waitress. I moved to Vegas about a year after the first time I lived in California, when I was in Vegas, I was a, I was a showgirl. I was a bartender. I started learning how to do flair bartending. So and then from there, I moved to Boston, where I started dancing more regularly. And yeah, so I have I have ran the gamut of different service industry jobs that I've done. When I was in Boston, I worked at Fenway Park as well. Then I moved to New York, and I became a coyote at Coyote Ugly. Like I, I have I have done every type of service industry job aside from probably cutting people's hair and driving taxis but it's, I've done a lot of them. <laughs> That's incredible. So it sounds like the earning part of money was not a big deal for you. When did you feel like you maybe started to control it and start to build wealth for yourself? That journey took a lot longer. I think I suffered from one of the things that I think many people in the service industry suffer from. We tend to not track our income. And so we don't realize the power of the income that we have. If people who are listening to this are not in the service industry, they can probably relate in the way that, you know, we lie to ourselves about how we spend. If you didn't track your spending and then someone asks you, how much do you think you spent on this this month? You would lie to yourself and you would under report. And it's the same thing for people in the service industry with their income. If you ask them how much they made in a month, it's always less than what you actually made. And so I think for a long time, I didn't realize the power that my income had and I wasn't a good steward over it because I didn't track it. And I was lying to myself. Oh, like, you know, I only made a hundred dollars this shift, forgot about the 
lunch I had and the coffee I bought and this little bit of shopping that I did. And so, yeah, I think it took me in 2013, my wife and I moved to New York and I got two jobs when I first moved here. The first was working at Coyote Ugly, which if people don't know what that is, it's a bar where the bartenders kind of dance on the bar and they sing and they serve cocktails and it's a good time. And the other job I got was working on Wall Street in an unregulated market. So for people unfamiliar with that, it was part trading floor and part independent sales organization that was selling things like usurious loan products. And I had been on the other side of predatory lending in the previous years, right? I had done payday loans. I had done rent-to-center renting furniture. I had done those credit cards that I had no idea what that interest was going to mean. I remember one of them had 20% interest, 24% interest. I mean, it was just, it was terrible. So seeing how, how those things originated was, it was an education on the markets. It was an education on financial services. And I think that those two experiences were kind of the beginnings of my aha moments with money. I was always a pretty good saver, but I never had long-term big goals. I just didn't know that I needed to think about retirement. That was not something that was modeled for me. You know, my parents modeled a debt cycle. They modeled home ownership, which was such a gift for me, right? Like I think that was very, as a big advantage up that I had was seeing them, them model home ownership. And that was probably what gave me the disillusion that I could buy a house at 19 <laughs> and probably what gives me, you know, the disillusion of continuously being a homeowner. But so I think modeling is very important, but I didn't have any role models as far as retirement or even saving or anything like that. Like I would save up for big trips or big moves. I liked, I like to travel and move around. So I would save up for those things, but it would, it would go right out the door. And I think some of that was scarcity mindset that I had to work through. But 2013 was kind of the beginning of that when after about six months on wall street, after like our third trader got shipped off to rehab, I was like, I can't do this anymore. This, this is, this is way too toxic of an industry for me. So I went back to construction and I became employee number four of the company that I now own. And in that company, I was tasked with setting up the HR department. I was tasked with setting up accounting and finance and I had never had an HR person before. So I didn't know what they did. And I didn't know what any of these benefits were. So I had to start Googling them. I had been researching them. Like I didn't know what a 401k was. I had only ever had health insurance once. And so on the other side, we were working with these really high net worth clients on their biggest budgetary items, millions and millions of dollars. And to see how they thought about money and to see how they spent their money and their behavior with money and realizing that even people with what I thought were unlimited resources, they were not, they were making careful considerations. And so it was in that moment where I was like, oh, seeing that mindset, seeing those set of systems and benefits and seeing, you know, how me and my peers were earning money and how different that was. I was realizing that these are the reasons that myself and my peers are left out of wealth building opportunities. We don't have these systems. We don't have these benefits and we don't have this mindset or this financial literacy. And so that was when I realized I needed to kind of turn things around was 2014. And I started reading some finance books and trying to set up good accounts for myself. I started investing in 2014. I started saving in 2014. My wife and I, 
we started dating in 2011, we did not share our money till five years later. We had been married for three years and we did not combine our finances. I think we both thought we were just like independent women and (laughs) that, you know, we didn't, there was no need to combine our finances because we could, you know, both support ourselves individually. But I will say, and while I think everyone has unique relationships and unique relationship goals for us, things changed drastically when we started combining finances when we got our money moving in the right direction and we started seeing our income as, you know, shared, it had a different impact, right? Like I was going to be a good steward over her money and she was going to be a good steward over my money. And together we had these, these goals. Whereas I think before we started combining money, we would enable each other, you know, like if I had a good week, I'd be like, drinks are on me, going outs on me, vacations on me, clothes are on me or, and vice versa. And so, but then when we started sharing it, we realized that those were not things that either of us really wanted or need. Neither of us, we're not big spenders. We spend lavishly on vacations and things like that. But yeah, so I think 2014, 2015 was when we got super serious on our journey and started, things started moving in the right direction and we started getting serious and realizing sort of just the power that we had over our own finances. It's amazing when you combine forces with your partner, if you especially start to have a like mindset where it's like, okay, we've got good money coming in. What can we do to really change our future together? Obviously, when you come together as a relationship, you have backgrounds of both parties then. So what was your wife's background with money? We understand your, you know, your background. Was this a difficult conversation for you and her when you're like, hey, I need to start paying attention to our money a little bit more. I've been reading these books. Are you in? Or was she like, no, 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 man, this is not for me. What was that conversation like? One of her big money memories is she started working for a defense contractor right out of college and she was new in her in her field in 2008 when the financial collapse hit and she just saw a lot of her, her peers who are much older lose what to her it seems like all of their wealth and she saw grown men crying people saying that they were going to have to work another 20 years and she just was like I want no part of this and so she never really invested you know like me she she didn't she wasn't a spender but things just kind of trickled trickled in and out and you know there wasn't a lot of progress so when we got together and I started reading all of this I think she was fully on board she didn't want to manage it <laughs> So she does finance for work and she's just like, I do this all day long. I don't want any part of this. And I think for her, it was also a little bit of awakening, like, oh, corporate finance doesn't translate to personal finance. Like I had no, she had no idea what a lot of these things were. And I think that was, that was an eye opener moment for both of us as well. Now we're in 2022. You guys have had some time together as a couple with this focus. Starting investing seriously in 2014, 2015 had a lot of benefits from it. How has your financial situation changed from where you were originally? Lots of credit card debt, payday loans to where you are today. Yeah, we're financially independent. We're definitely not at fat fire, especially because we live in New York City we live modestly for living in New York city. Like we have a 450 square foot apartment. We don't have a car and and we're really happy with simplistic things. Like I said, we do spend lavishly on vacations, but outside of that, like most of our, most of our spending is food and the occasional Broadway show. So we've been able to do a lot in those few years because 
of a lot of mindset shifts. One, I think we used to, we used to go out a lot more than we do now because I remember also feeling like we had to sacrifice our savings goals because our lives seemed easier than other people's. So I remember whenever we would go out to eat with people with kids or with people with like difficult financial situations, we were always putting the bill. And I think, you know, we thought we had to sacrifice our savings goals because other people had it harder or maybe, you know, didn't have as much, you know, cash flow readily available to them. And I think for us that changed. We were like, oh, we need to put some some goals in place for ourselves. And, you know, then we can treat people and then we can can go from there. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. For six generations, the Jones family has been providing high-quality meats. And now, we're providing treats for the best member of your family, man's best friend, a.k.a. the goodest boys and girls. Jones Natural Shoes makes bones and treats that are sure to be savored by your dog and are made from the best natural ingredients available. Our flavorful chews are made from natural animal parts and will have your puppy drooling with happiness. From treats like sticks and chews to savory bones and patties, we've got you covered for finding the perfect reward for that special pup in your life. Jones Natural Chews come in all sizes, so make sure to choose the right treat for your pup. And remember, it's important to be supervising your pup when they're enjoying their treats to keep your puppy safe. Jones Natural Chews, available at a pet store near you. Or visit jonesnaturalchews.com to get started with our store locator tool. That's Jones Natural Chews, available at a pet store near you. I love seeing the transition from where you were. And it's not like, I don't think you're out there saying the service industry, this is when I was struggling and now I own my own business and now I'm thriving. I think you have a balance of both, right? I mean, being able to work in the service industry and owning your own business and growing your wealth, paying attention to investing, they can coexist, right? If somebody had told me at 21, everything that I put in this book and everything that I know now, I would have stayed in the service industry forever. And I think that was a big part in writing this book. I loved the service industry. I think I'm somebody who has that, that gift, you know, raising the energy and the vibration and the joy of people who come into the establishments that I worked at. And I think that we underestimate as a community, we underestimate those, those skills and that gift for people. But I think we all felt it a little bit during the pandemic when our barbershops and our restaurants and our transportation people were, you know, we hit pause on all of that and, I think we all lost a lot of joy in our lives because the people who work in those establishments, you know, they're the people that listen to us. They're the people that empathize with us. They're the people that say, I'm so glad you're here. It may be the only smile that you get in a day, right? Like I think the people in these industries provide tremendous impact for our communities. And I was somebody who loved 
giving that service, loved being that bright spot in someone's day, loved having unique and challenging and fun, feisty conversations with my patrons. And so it, I would have, I would have stayed in that forever. Absolutely. hundred percent. So my service industry experience, I didn't have any financial literacy. And that was a big part of why I chose to write this book, because I think that this industry has real potential. We don't suffer from an income problem. It's that these benefits and systems that most of Americans, you know, enjoy are not available for people in the industry. Most Americans build wealth in two ways. One, 401k, and two, with their primary residence. Both of those things are not available to people who work in the service industry. 95% of employers do not offer any employee benefits in the service industry. Majority of them are mom and pop businesses. And it's not that they don't want to offer benefits. It's that those businesses run on really lean margins and they likely wouldn't make it if they had to support an HR department and all of the compliance measures that come along with these benefits. And so realizing that this was the big gap for these people has fueled my passion to make financial literacy more accessible to them because you can set up your own retirement benefit system when you work in the service industry. You can set up your own pay time off. A lot of people in the service industry don't track their income and therefore they don't claim the appropriate amount of income or even claim income at all, which means that they are not eligible for traditional financing when it comes to purchasing a home. So they're left out of wealth building opportunities that way as well. Let's talk about those two areas then, Barbara, because I resemble that comment. Like I, I've built my wealth by investing in my employer, 401k, Roth IRAs, HSAs, things like that. And then I bought my house and I paid it off. That's pretty much how we became millionaires. It's nothing exciting at all, really. It's like retirement accounts and a paid off house and some cash. So let's talk about how people can invest if the traditional ways that I went about it aren't available for people in the service industry. How can somebody who's listening to this right now say, hey, I I need to start investing. I don't have any options like a 401k at my place of work. Where do they start? Yeah. So if you're working in an establishment that gives you a W-2, and even if you get paychecks that are like 13 cents or, you know, $4 because your taxes eat them up, if you have that W-2 technically income and you are subject to the $2.13 an hour federal minimum wage, which we can go into, then what you can do for retirement accounts is starting with an individual retirement account or an IRA. And you can, if you claim, the thing that I also like to add for people in the service industry here is that you cannot invest into a retirement account unless you claim income, right? So if you are in the service industry and you have to you have to claim $6,000 in income in order to be able to invest $6,000 of earned income. That's very important for people in this industry to know that. And then once you max out your IRA, you then have to go to like a brokerage account. For other people who are on the 1099 side, which I think is a great option for people in the service industry, 1099 workers sometimes it can feel as though your employer is taking advantage of you, but really I think People who work in 1099 situations, 
it would be great if they got more educated on what they can do for themselves in that situation, because you have a lot more options for writing off business expenses. And especially with investment, if you are attending the nine employee, you have access to something called a solo 401k. And especially if you're somebody who thinks that you might be doing service industry for a shorter period of time, say maybe you're a dancer or you're, you know, doing something that's more on the entertainment side, then you want to fill those buckets as fat as possible, as early on as possible. So something like a solo 401k would be great. And same thing after that, you can move on to a brokerage account, but there's lots of options to invest. You can still invest, even though you don't have a employer provided retirement account. That's fantastic. Yeah, those are really great tips, everybody, to jump in. Now let's talk about real estate. I'm just thinking about the maybe predatory loans that both you and I were offered in 2003 and 2004. Now things have tightened up a lot over the past 15 years, 15, 17 years plus. How difficult is it for somebody in the service industry to get a traditional mortgage? It's difficult. It's it's especially difficult because people aren't either claiming their full income or claiming any income. And so what they don't know is that banks and lending institutions typically want to see two years worth of income. And so if you are thinking about potentially getting into the housing market and buying a home, you need to be really you know, making sure that you're claiming all of your income and that you can prove that income because they need to know that you're going to be able to be reliable for those mortgage payments. So that's my biggest tip for people in lending. And don't don't count yourself out, right? Like lots of people who live on, who earn low and middle income buy houses. There's, if you are interested in home ownership, start going to open houses, Even if you don't know how that path is available for you, start having conversations with different lenders, start having conversations with brokers. There are all sorts of creative ways that people get into real estate. And so you won't know whether or not this this is an option for you until you start heading down that path. I really, really encourage people to just start going to open houses and having conversations. Now, Barbara, there's somebody listening and they're thinking, you know, I've been in the service industry for a while. I'm barely scraping by. This system is set up for me to fail. There's no way I can become financially independent. What would you say to that person? I like to define financially independent and financial freedom first, because I think when I first heard those terms, I thought it just meant you were rich. And now what I know is that financial freedom's It means that you have control over your finances and control of your choices. And those things are very important and they're very within control of yourself. So you have to define what enough is for yourself first to know that you'll be able to get there. I love that example of the janitor who made $40,000 a year and retired millionaires. Like it just shows you what's possible Because if you're somebody who's working and you're not making even minimum wage on your tips, my biggest piece of advice for you would be to switch employers, switch the establishment that you're working at, try somewhere else. I never made minimum wage in a service industry job and I worked all over the country. So I think try a different place, right? Like how much you earn in the service industry is so specific to the type of establishment and the type of work that you're doing. Are you a bus boy? Figure out a way that maybe you can talk to your manager about getting some shifts on the floor. 
talk to your manager about training on service bar. See if there's ways that you can pick up some extra responsibilities. I remember going to the library and getting books of cocktails. This was before I was a bartender and memorizing cocktails before I was a bartender. Just remembering the ingredients and how much and practicing how to pour while I was still serving, while I was still a coat check girl, because I wanted to move up to those establishments and positions that maybe made a little bit more money. So I I encourage people to either look within your place of employment for more opportunity or switch employers. Well, Barbara, let's leave one tip for somebody who's listening right now and they say, okay, I work in the service industry. I'm just getting started with this financial freedom stuff. I want it. I'm interested. What's one takeaway that they can have following this interview to get started? I would recommend, I know this is a little self-promotion-y, but I would recommend my book because it's no one else out is out there talking to people in the service industry. And hopefully there are more voices that enter the, you know, the space But right now, it's the only resource that I know of that people can find something that's pretty comprehensive. Personally, I think the first thing they should start with is an emergency fund. I had what was called an F-up fund, which it was sort of like self-employment insurance. So like I remember one time I lost my billfold, which had all of my money for my shift in it, for all of my tables, all of my change, everything. I lost that billfold. And I made the situation a lot worse. It was my fault. I lost it. But then I got mad and I got mad at my manager and I got mad at, I got mad at everybody. And I made the situation a lot worse. And then I realized, oh, I can self-insure against these kinds of mistakes. Like I remember I had started my F up fund and I had like $800 in it. And I remember dropping a really expensive bottle of wine. And instead of blaming my manager, telling them that they should eat it. I just, I came out of my little, my little pocket and I was like, you know what? That was my mistake. I got it covered. And not every establishment will require that you do that. But I remember that was sort of the beginning of like, this is my career path and I'm taking ownership over it. And I can protect myself against these small mistakes. And then when I grasped that concept, then I really understood the emergency you know, the emergency plan and the emergency savings and how important that was. And that was my next, my next big thing. I love my emergency fund. It's like one of my favorite things in the whole world. And I think for a lot of people in the service industry, especially when there's that power imbalance dynamic, depending on your establishment and what role you're in, it allows you to say no in situations that may feel unsafe or, you know, just not okay for you. And it allows you to protect yourself in situations with the general public because the general public can be, that can be a hazard sometimes for you in this industry. So the setting yourself up with some sort of emergency fund is the first thing you can do to protect yourself. Absolutely. It's a good message to end with to Barbara as we're potentially facing a maybe a recession next year. Having some money in the bank is not a bad idea, everybody, whatever industry you work in. Barbara, tell people where they can get this book. Yeah. So right now it's available on Amazon and you can also find it at my website, www.tippedfinance.com. You can also follow me on socials. I am at Tip Finance on all the socials. I try to make personal finance pretty fun there. I make some memes. I try to make it super approachable. You can also reach out to me 
through my website if you're interested in one-on-one coaching or I do money talks to your business or establishment. If you have a bar, a restaurant, a club, if you own Uber, if you, <laughs> you know, have any sort of service industry establishments, I will come and do a free money talk to your establishment because I think that it helps businesses and it helps employees. That's incredible, Barbara. And I'm excited for, maybe I'm just putting this in there, maybe a a future tipped finance podcast. I would listen to that all day long. (laughs) (laughs) Barbara, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for chatting. Financial independence and financial freedom for the hardworking folks in the service industry. I absolutely love it. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Barbara Sloan. Number one, create a reason to save and invest. When saving and investing feels boring, you got to make it more interesting. Instead of saving just to save or investing just to invest, put some purpose around it. Save so you have the financial confidence to leave a job or relationship that's not serving you anymore. Save so you can pay for emergencies with cash instead of going into credit card debt. Invest so you can eventually live off your investments when you want to work less. Put some purpose to your saving and investing, and you'll be more motivated. Number two, claim your real income. As a tipped worker, you may have a desire not to claim your real income so you don't have to pay as many taxes, right? But this can shut you out from major wealth-building opportunities like investing for retirement and home ownership. According to Barbara Sloan, The long-term benefits of claiming your real income definitely beat out the short-term benefits of not claiming your real income. Number three, invest for retirement and buy a home. There are three major ways people build wealth, in my opinion, and Barbara's advice and story appear to agree with that opinion. That's stocks, real estate, and business ownership. While starting a business can be difficult, time-consuming, and extremely risky, depending on what you're going into, investing for your retirement is simple, it's proven, and it pays off in a big way long-term. Start with a Roth IRA, like Barbara said. Start investing with what you have or what you can do, and then grow from there. Don't worry about maxing things out or starting at a high level. Just do what you can and then slowly build up from there. And buying a home can feel really impossible too when you're just starting out. But by putting away more and more money month over month, home ownership can become a reality as well. Investing in stocks and buying real estate. That's the millionaire financial freedom, financial independence secret sauce. As we've said in the past, it's simple, but it's not easy. And those are my top three takeaways, everyone. I would love to hear from you on what yours were. Please hit me up on social media at Marriage Kids and Money on Instagram and at Andy Hill MKM on Facebook. And let's keep the conversation going. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional who knows your situation best, who knows your specific financial situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabbitt for editing today's show, to Weird Digital Marketing for supporting us on Instagram and YouTube, and Mandy Burt for her stellar writing. As always, this content that we put together on all of our platforms is not possible without these folks, so thank you all very, very much. Hey everyone, it is time for a Big Tip Tuesday update. As of the time of this recording, we are up to $700 in big tip giving for the 2022 season. We've nearly cracked that $1,000 mark already. This is great. I think we've got, what have we got, three weeks to go? Now, our goal 
is $3,000 as a reminder. This is in random big tips given before the new year. So to give you some motivation, I'm going to share a few participants and how they gave. These are the folks who've shared with us already. So this one's from Mark on LinkedIn. He says, I recently gave my daughter a $100 bill before going out to eat and told her she needed to give it to someone at the restaurant after our meal was finished. She walked over to our waitress after we were done eating with the biggest smile on her face. Made a lot of people's days, including mine. Thanks for spearheading this. Very cool, Mark. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm so glad you involved your daughter in it too, because that is a way to build generational wealth and happiness, right? I mean, she's going to see that giving is a part of this journey. Very cool. And there was also Josh on Facebook. He shared a picture of a $100 tip that he left at a restaurant with the receipt and a hashtag Big Tip Tuesday with it. He said this, it's a season for giving and I was completely captivated by this concept. Hashtag Big Tip Tuesday. Your podcast has motivated me to take my seasonal giving a bit farther than normal. Thank you for your words of motivation and guests with amazing testimony. Your show is a blessing. Thank you. Josh, thank you very much. Obviously, I love these words of affirmation because that's the kind of guy I am. I really appreciate hearing from you and I appreciate that the podcast has helped you to grab on to this season of giving and and just make it uh, that much more special for you. So thank you. And then last but not least is our friend Barbara Sloan, who we just interviewed. And she's not only helping tipped workers with her new book and her advice, but financially she's helping them as well. Barbara gave a $100 tip to her server recently and she shared a photo of it and she shared this. Join me in doing hashtag Big Tip Tuesday for the holidays. Send me a copy of your Big Tip receipt and I will match it for the month of December. What an awesome offer from Barbara. This is so cool. Barbara is a true leader for service industry professionals and she's a leader for creating positive impact in our country, in our community. So thank you so much for your example, Barbara. Thank you so much for your example, Josh and Mark as well. If you want to join in on this hashtag Big Tip Tuesday action, everybody, you know what to do. Give generously. This doesn't have to be $100, by the way. It can be a 100% tip. Let's say you got like a $5 coffee. You want to give another five bucks. That's great. That's cool. Or maybe you went out to a lunch that's only 20 bucks and you want to give 20 bucks. That's cool. Wow. You know, I mean, that's a way to give generously. Just give more than you'd normally do, right? And then share your generosity through social media or through a voicemail to me at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail or on an email to me, andy at marriagekidsandmoney.com. Or again, social media is the best way because you're putting it out there and you know it, it might feel like you're being boastful with your good deeds, right? You might feel like, oh, I don't really want to share that because that's, you know, it feels like I'm bragging or it's too boastful. But honestly, it's been proven to create more good deeds. By sharing your good deeds, it creates a ripple effect of kindness not only with the big tip that you gave, but also sharing the good news. People see good news and then they are motivated. There is, I mean, honestly, there is so much negative news out there and negative news or negative, whatever we want to call it, bad news, begets more negativity and, and bad news, right? So why not share something that's positive and then we can create more positivity, create the news you want to hear more of, right? We can do this. <laughs> Thanks for considering everyone. More Big Tip Tuesday news is definitely coming throughout the month and I appreciate you considering it and joining in again. Doesn't need to be a hundred bucks. Just do what you can. Create some positivity. I think you're going to feel it in your heart that it's, uh, it's a good thing to do. 
In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Robin Roberts. Being optimistic is like a muscle that gets stronger with use. It makes it easier when the tough times arrive. You have to change the way you think in order to change the way you feel. You can do this, everyone. You are strong, you are capable, and you are ready. Carpe diem. 